You're listening to the Tranquility Tribe podcast, an empowering space for all parents from conception to childhood. In this podcast, you'll explore your birth options, hear from experts in the field, learn to embrace self-indulgence, and prepare yourself for parenthood with Haiti. She's a coffee connoisseur, lover of deep belly laughs, a big-time tailgater, and your neighborhood birth junkie. From Mississippi to Massachusetts and everywhere in between, here's your host, Hee. Hello, villagers! Happy Tuesday! I am so grateful that you have chosen to spend your time with me today caring about the things that I care about, fighting the fights that I fight, and spreading the love and kindness that I also believe and am spreading. Cool. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Also, I appreciate you showing up. You should appreciate that too. Take a moment and thank yourself for just being, for just getting out of bed today, for just showing up for your partner, for showing up for your job, showing up for your children. Whatever it is for you, tell your body, thank you. Yesterday was Monday, so the beginning of the week is over. Tomorrow is hump day, and it's all downhill after that. And then you're headed into the weekend. So, yeah, today's a good day. Thank yourself for showing up. I thank you for showing up. I'm super, super excited about today's episode. You're listening to episode number 53 of the Tranquility Tribe podcast. Last week, we dove into the law surrounding home birth midwifery with Joyce Hunt Kimball, a midwife who is going to be directly affected by this bill. She explained how things might be impacting women's health and their ability to choose. This week, I have on the show Diana Snyder, who is on the other side of the bill. She is a healthcare attorney who, when she made the move to Massachusetts, she was shocked to find herself really let down. Her expectations were way too high for the amount of legislation that was in home birth midwifery. This led to her frustration and it eventually led to her advocating for this bill she so deeply believes in, midwifery regulation. Diana, I'm so excited for you to share your perspective with our listeners. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to share all of your knowledge with our listeners today. So last week we had the opposing perspective of Bill 81189. And so this week we're going to be diving into the perspective that legislation definitely needs to happen and that it's a very good thing. It's a safe thing. Diana, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be on this journey of lobbying for legislation of midwifery? Sure. So I graduated from Boston University School of Law in 2011, where I focused on uh, the intersection of healthcare and women's rights. And after that, I practiced for four years in California, where uh, a close friend of mine who was working in obstetrics approached me for input from a legal perspective about the things she was witnessing in hospital maternity care. And we all know the things I'm referring to, right? Forced cesareans, the autonomies without consent, coerced induction, bullying, 
list goes on. Uh, like most people, I had not previously heard of abuses occurring in maternity care. I had no idea that hospitals were going out for quality care uh, at all. Uh, and at the time, you know, like most people, I thought that birth was quote unquote dangerous. If I ever had a baby, I would tattoo epidural on my forehead, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, as I listened to her describe what she was witnessing at work and learned more about, um, you know, the state of maternity care and the evidence for and against things, immediately this resonated with me as like a major moral, uh, legal, and ethical problem that I wanted to be involved in fixing since uh, I have legal skills. So uh, my law school thesis at the time had been about the phenomenon of religious pharmacists berating women uh, about uh, birth control prescriptions and refusing to fill them, which I had uh, thought was a very clear abuse of a position of authority over a vulnerable patient, you know, for reasons of personal preference. And uh, I learned about the issue of obstetricians and nurses forcing women to comply, you know, with policies driven by risk management, et cetera, you know, uh, that kind of thing without regard to the woman's true medical need or values or even, you know, most importantly, her legal right uh, to make the ultimate decision. It struck me as exactly the same um, issue. And so I got hooked on birth rights really quickly and spent the next several years uh, working pretty much daily with uh, improvingbirth.org uh, and human rights and childbirth, which I'm sure you know, some of your followers are familiar with, uh, to use my legal skills uh, to assist women basically uh, pro bono uh, in pursuing lawsuits and other legal uh, redress against OBs uh, who subjected them to non-consented care, basically. So during that time, uh, simultaneously, my husband and I were thinking about starting family, uh, and I knew after all this work I'd done that I would not be comfortable in a hospital. So I began exploring home birth, um, including the differences between CPMs and CPMs, how CPMs are educated, how they practice, et cetera. You know, uh, and as a lawyer, that type of like intense research is really uh, my jam. You know, and the more I learned about CPMs and how they're trained, I was just really impressed and I felt like I had totally identified the provider that I was going to feel comfortable with for my own pregnancy and I just couldn't believe, you know, that more women didn't, didn't consider that an option and didn't really understand, you know, how impressive uh, CPMs really are, in my opinion. So uh, while I was in California, I was in the Bay Area, um, I began getting to know the local uh, home birth midwives and the landscape of the home birth uh, community. And during that time, I really benefited like immensely from the licensure framework that exists in California. Uh, I was provided with a lot of information uh, that had already been verified and compiled by an independent third party. I could go look up on the state licensing website, each uh, midwife education their years of practice in the state, you know, whether her license was clear or had any restrictions or any disciplinary history on it. Um, the state of California made available an annual report with statistics about how many transfers, emergencies, et cetera, you know, had occurred in home births with licensed midwives uh, in the last year. And as a consumer, I thought that was amazing. You know, I felt really supported and accessing that type of care and really confident. Uh, there were birth centers all over the place, and you know, I'm not talking about the hospital-affiliated kind that we have here in Massachusetts. I'm talking about like the truly independent CPM run of the hospital birth centers. Uh, they were all over. There were like at least three within an hour of me. Um, every licensed midwife I interviewed was amazing, professional. I spoke to local OBs and nurse midwife hospitals about home birth. Like they didn't even bat an eye. You know, they were willing to recommend specific midwives to me. They're just really open um, in terms of the environment. Um, so while I was doing all this, I got involved a little bit with the California Association of Midwives, which is the trade organization for home birth midwives in California, um, giving them some regulatory advice, 
um, here and there, uh, informed consent issues, and uh, the licensure framework and stuff. And it was all going great. And then my husband and I relocated on um, really short notice, Massachusetts. Uh, and I had to start my sort of search for home birth midwife over here, you know. And immediately, the pretty stark difference between Massachusetts uh, and California. There's no licensure here. And the landscape was just really different. There's none of the transparency here. There's none of the data available to me that I had relied on in California. Um, and of course, there are zero independent birth centers here. Um, so my search for midwife was really difficult. Um, I found Massachusetts to just be very different. Um, I learned and during my interviews that a lot of the home birth midwives here get their anti-hemorrhage medications uh, under the table, that sometimes physicians uh, openly question their right to use these medications, uh, and that while there was one hospital near me, I was living in Boston at the time, uh, that would provide me tandem prenatal care, knowing that I was planning a home birth, that they would not speak to my midwife prenatally. They would not coordinate with her in any way. Um, in particular, they would not coordinate with her about certain needed medications that I had, uh, in particular Rogium, because I'm RH negative. Uh, and the reason for all this is because she's unlicensed, you know? So my midwife had to obtain that medication for me through other means, um, which, you know, again, um, because there's no licensure law here uh, under the table. And uh, compared to California, I just found all this to be really ridiculous and not fully above board. Um, so it wasn't long before uh, I found other midwives and other consumers of home birth here in Massachusetts who have been working for years to pass licensure legislation, and I just dove into it. You know, um, since I'm a lawyer, I work at a law firm. My, my law firm was willing to let me work uh, on a legislative effort pro bono, and the rest is history. Wow, that is fascinating. So it's really interesting that you mentioned the bullying. So I had never actually seen this in women's care, like healthcare before, before I entered the birth world. And now I've actually been bullied. It's really wild um, how evil can, you know, people can actually act when they're like not stable and secure in themselves and they have like emotional intelligence. So I do know exactly what you're talking about there. And then also diving into the birthrights, just hearing about it and feeling the spark inside. That was me in the training. I, I felt, and I've talked about this before, listeners, and on the episode about um, certification and why I actually chose not to get certified, I talked about that spark. It felt like that very last puzzle piece for me. Um, so that resonated with me, no doubt. And then finally, Oh, Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts is a culture of its own. Um, you know, so I can resonate with you 100% coming here and being totally shocked with what happens here and how people act um, and the things that are either regulated or not. It's very bizarre. It really, you know, it's definitely a different ball game, and it took... It took me a while, but I'm finally being able to play this like Massachusetts culture game. But I totally 100% resonate with so many pieces of your story. So bagging up for the very basics, can you remind us from last week, um, what are the differences between all of the different types of, of midwives? So CNM, CPM, and direct entry. Um, it's nice to just start off with a fresh reminder. Sure. <clears throat> so, um, yep, it's a little confusing. 
the SANMs, uh, certified nurse midwives, need to go to nursing school first before obtaining a graduate degree in midwifery. And they do that from a school that has been accredited by the ACNM, which stands for American College of Nurse Midwives. Uh, there are a couple of CNM schools that offer a three-year um, program in which you can obtain your nursing education in the first year and then move straight through to midwifery training. But most of the time, to be a CNM, you need to go get your ASN or BSN. Then you need to sit for the RN licensing exam in your state. Uh, and then you need to practice nursing. A lot of times they want at least a year. Sometimes for competitive programs, it could be you have to hang out practicing nursing for a much longer time. Um, and then separately, you need to apply to nurse midwifery school and then go to the nurse uh, midwifery master's program. Uh, CNMs are licensed in all 50 states. They usually practice in hospitals. I would say probably about only 4 or 5% attend home births. Uh, and then there's direct entry midwives. Uh, and there's sort of two different branches here. Um, the CM, or certified midwife, is a newer credential. Uh, and it is a, quote unquote, direct entry credential offered by ACNM, American College of Nurse Midwives, for folks who want to become a master's level midwife uh, with education accredited by ACNM, but they don't want to be a nurse first. There are only two schools in the country accredited by ACNM that will uh, offer this type of program, you know, the kind where you don't have to have a nursing degree. Uh, it's a master's level program, so you do, do need to have a bachelor's first before applying, uh, but it doesn't have to be in nursing. And only a handful of states, like uh, New York and Rhode Island, there are a couple, there's a few more, but only a handful uh, licensed. CMs. So uh, the original direct entry midwives are CPMs, who we're talking about today, um, who are credentialed by NARM, the North American Registry of Midwives, and they're currently licensed in 32 states, of which, of which Massachusetts is not one. Um, to become a CPM in the U.S., there's two pathways, um, although this has been complicated a little bit by um, the recent U.S. NARA agreement, which we'll talk a little bit about in the context of the bill. Uh, to pursue a CPM, you do not need to have first earned a college degree. You need to have completed high school or a GED. Uh, although a 2016 survey that was circulated to uh, practicing CPMs by NARM did show that the large majority of CPMs were college educated. Uh, the first pathway to pursuing a CPM is known as PEP, which stands for the Portfolio Evaluation Process. Uh, and this allows prospective midwives to begin their education immediately by uh, apprenticing with a local midwife rather than having to apply to an institution and complete coursework. Midwives pursuing the PEP pathway, uh, just like CPMs who are going through an accredited school, uh, have to obtain and document a minimum number of clinical experiences, for example, a certain number of fatal exams, postpartum exams, versus the primary attendant under supervision, versus an observer. Uh, the student and the preceptor midwife document everything. They submit it to NARM through a portfolio, hence the name portfolio evaluation process. And uh, once the student has obtained the requisite number of clinicals, which usually takes about three years, but you know, you have you have longer, I don't think that there is necessarily a limit on time, the student is eligible to sit for the uh, NARM exam, and they also have to complete a hands-on, I believe a hands-on skills assessment in order to be granted certification as a CPM. Uh, you can also sit for the NARM exam and become a CPM by pursuing an accredited education, which is a newer pathway that's developed um, more recently as CPMs have become more professionalized in the US. Um, at present, I think there's around, I'm just guessing, I didn't count, but I'm guessing there's probably around 12 midwifery institutions in the country that have programs ranging from degree granting to certificate granting that are educating prospective CPMs. 
Uh, these programs are accredited by MEEC, which stands for the Midwifery Education Accreditation Council, which is a uh, nonprofit that's approved by the U.S. Department of Education to accredit CPM education. Uh, you can go to meekschool.org to see a list of the MEEC accredited schools. Uh, and students pursuing a, a CPM who attend MEEC schools uh, pay tuition. They're eligible for federal student loans, just like anyone else attending uh, college. Uh, MEEC schools generally offer a combination of distance and um, on-site, like in-person learning, so that CPM students can study in their home communities most of the time as much as possible without having to relocate, and then they only go to campus like one or like a handful of times per year to do like um, uh, uh, like hands-on skill stuff with their uh, with their learning cohort. Uh, MEEC programs. Uh, incorporate the apprenticeship model uh, as much as possible by requiring students to obtain placement with a preceptor midwife in their community. And in addition to coursework, uh, just like those in the PEP pathway, they're required to obtain a minimum number of clinical hours for which they get academic credit. And then once uh, graduated from their, their school, their MEEK school, these students sit for the NARM exam, uh, just like uh, PEP uh, students, and upon passage, they become a CPM. Lots of information. Yeah, so there's lots of pathways that people can get to to be in a midwife. So, can you explain to our listeners what Bill H one one eight nine will be changing about the current midwifery laws of Massachusetts? So, like, break it down all the way, and just why is this bill important? Sure. Um, so it's. It's complex, so I'm glad you asked me to break it down all the way. Um, you know, at present in Massachusetts, certified nurse midwives or CNMs are the only midwives uh, who are licensed in the state. Uh, of course, we know that nurses and physicians are also licensed. Home birth midwives are not. Um, and as far as relevant statutory laws, meaning laws that are passed by the legislature, uh, that's it. So this means that unless you are a CNM, a nurse midwife, which is rare because they mostly practice in the hospital, any person can set up shop here and call themselves uh, a home birth midwife because without licensure, there's no minimum educational requirements, no minimum credential, no transparency or accountability for consumers, meaning there's nothing to stop a midwife who is uh, theoretically practicing dangerously from, from doing so. Um, even if NARM, who we discussed in North American Registry of Midwives, the credentialing body for CPMs were to revoke a midwife's uh, credential, uh, that person could continue to practice in Massachusetts and consumers would have no way of knowing because there is no licensure framework. So how will uh, the bill, which is actually is renumbered now HB 4655, uh, change the law? Uh, it authorizes a board of midwifery to issue licenses, handle complaints, uh, establish practice guidelines, that kind of thing so that the profession can self-regulate and so there can be some transparency and accountability to consumers. And also, as we'll discuss uh, more, uh, I'll go into it in a minute, some protection from midwives. Um, now, because there's no law in Massachusetts that explicitly prohibits home birth midwifery, like making it illegal, there are some people who believe that no licensure law is, is needed. Um, but it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, in context of pre-existing physician and nurse licensure, which we have, uh, together with the fact that certain actions that CPMs engage in when they're providing care for women overlap with actions that doctors and nurses engage in. This puts CPMs uh, at risk of being accused of practicing medicine or nursing without a license. And it also creates a bit of a legal presumption 
because the legislature has acted to authorize some professions with licensure and others, that the professions it has passed over, meaning CPMs, uh, are therefore not authorized. Uh, in law school, we, we learn about this as a basic, what's called a canon of statutory interpretation, that omissions by the legislature are considered intentional, and courts will interpret them that way. So the mere fact that the slate is not clean, meaning that in Massachusetts, you know, whether we like licensure or not as a philosophical matter, physicians and nurses are already licensed. And that means that uh, even though their, you know, profession is a factual matter, is wholly distinct from medicine and nursing, you know, uh, these are the legal standards against which CPMs would be judged if they were ever to be caught up in a legal battle uh, because their profession and its standards is not enshrined in law. So there's nothing else. There's a, there's a void. Um, a second topic relevant to your question about midwifery laws is uh, what we call the common law, which means any applicable court decision. Uh, and one that's sometimes discussed in the context of licensure is the Lee case. Um, Lee versus Board of Registration in Nursing is a Massachusetts court case from the 80s in which a nurse named Janet Lee was moonlighting as a home birth midwife uh, without being licensed uh, or trained as a nurse midwife. She's a nurse but had not gone on to get the additional uh, midwifery training. And although Janet Lee's punishment um, was upheld by the Board of Nursing, there is one particular sentence in this case uh, in which the court comments that, quote unquote, midwifery is not medicine. And this line has occasionally been used to assert that licensure is not necessary because midwifery has been recognized in our common law in this case is distinct from medicine already. Um, but this is not, unfortunately, really a complete or accurate reading of the Lee case. Uh, in that case, the court takes great care to note that its comment about midwifery not being medicine is what we call in the legal profession dictum, which means that it's merely an observation by the particular judge that is, uh, one, not specifically relevant to the case at hand. And here, you know, because this is a case about a nurse, about nurse midwifery and not about CPM, we know that. And two, it also means when something's dictum that it is not precedent in future cases, meaning that CPMs could not rely on this kind of one-off observation that midwifery is not medicine to defend themselves if they were ever accused of practicing medicine illegally. So that's unfortunate. And additionally, in this uh, line of commentary in this court case, the court essentially comes out and makes clear that when it says midwifery is not medicine, what it is referring to is what we think of as lay midwifery or traditional midwifery, which is the type when the midwife is not using medication, you know, not carrying equipment, but rather is attending to a woman at home with purely parts and hands. And therein lies the problem. Therein lies the answer to why this case is unfortunately not substitute for licensure that some people think it is. CPMs are not lay midwives. They're not traditional midwives. Uh, the lay court, unfortunately, that midwives who carry equipment and medication are practicing medicine, and that that's the distinction, that if you're not doing those things, you're not. If you are carrying equipment, carrying medication, you are. And since we know that CPMs carry medication like Pitocin, like Rogam, Methogen, and equipment like oxygen tanks, suturing material, that sort of thing, you know, unfortunately, the lead case is not only not helpful to CPMs, I actually think it's hurtful. Um, so all this to say, you know, it's complicated, but we need to make sure that CPMs have their own licensure law, not just for consumer protection and access, which we can talk about more, but also for protection of midwives. 
you know, we hear all the time from colleagues in other states um, that the medical community was tolerant of unlicensed home birth midwives until one day it wasn't. You know, usually it's precipitated by an emergent transfer and suddenly one angry doctor or nurse, you know, is talking about practicing medicine without a license and that's all it takes to, you know, drive what was once sort of thriving uh, home birth community operating without licensure, everybody thinking it's good, you now all of a sudden it gets driven underground. And of course that can try and make midwives hesitant to transfer when needed and that in turn puts consumers at risk, right? So in the event of any complaints, you know, what we want is for CPMs to be judged against their own professional standards by a body of their peers, right? By other CPMs, not by doctors, not by nurses who know nothing about home birth and they have a vendetta against home birth and who don't understand the way that CPMs are trained. And without a CPM law, you know, there's this void. And the only standards that look relevant, you know, to the authorities when assessing the legality of CPM practice are going to be the Medical and Nursing Practice Act, or worse, worse, the criminal law. You know, another benefit to passing CPM licensure is that it provides uh, an administrative avenue for handling any complaints, meaning complaints would go through the Board of Midwifery, which is comprised of midwives. Whereas without licensure, sometimes district attorneys even may pick up complaints uh, and treat them as a criminal negligence matter or even a homicide matter if, God forbid, a baby were to die in a home birth. You know, and we've seen that happen in other states because it's really easy to sell the notion of a, quote, lay person recklessly delivering someone's baby at home when the midwife holds no license. But when there's licensure, you know, whether or not midwives think that they need a cloak of legitimacy, it provides a cloak of legitimacy that can protect them in these circumstances. Does that make sense? For sure. So this board that you're talking about, who makes that up? Who's going to sit on the board um, that legislates what happens with midwifery in our state? So in HB 4, uh, 4655, this is one aspect of the bill that we are like really, really proud of. Um, the board is majority CPM. Uh, what's standard in most states, I mean, it varies from state to state, I should back up and say, it varies from state to state, and we have seen that in some states uh, there's been situations with the board that we've tried very hard to avoid and we have avoided this bill. So, for example, we don't want the board, and I'll discuss this a little bit later, we don't want the board positioned under the Board of Medicine. That's wrong. That's not where it should, that it should be an independent board, not affiliated with the Board of Medicine or the Board of Nursing. And that's how we've, we've structured it. We've structured it to be independent under the Department of Public Health, which is how other independent health professions are regulated. Uh, and then the composition to your question is the next issue. Our board is structured to be majority CPM. It's pretty standard that these boards have at least one doctor on them because of the issue of home birth transfers. Um, it's also pretty standard to have a consumer rep, which we have. It's also pretty standard to have one nurse midwife again because of transfers, and maybe a doctor, or maybe a nurse midwife um, who is on the receiving end for home birth transfers. Um, so our board is comprised of five CPMs, um, and I believe it says they have to have been practicing at least five years or something like that to be considered. Uh, one physician, not necessarily an OB, to be any type of physician, as long as they have uh, had experience without a hospital birth, so it can't just be any physician. It's got to be somebody who's known for working with the home birth community. Uh, a nurse midwife and consumer rep. So the way that the board is, it's stacked with CPMs, and the numbers are such that CPMs cannot be outnumbered because there's only one doctor 
and one nurse midwife. And presumably the consumer rep would always side with, with the midwives in terms of any scope of practice issues. So, like I mentioned, we're really proud of that because it's a scenario in which clearly the CPMs are gonna completely control any guidelines that get written. And so there is no incentive or no scenario in which they would restrict their own scope of practice because they're writing it for themselves and they can't be overruled. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So for our, um, for our listeners, can you explain um, the consumer rep? Who might that be and what is their job? Um, the consumer rep will be somebody just like all the other positions on the board, uh, all the CPMs, the one MD, the one nurse midwife. It will be somebody who's appointed by the governor. Uh, and that's how uh, all these regulatory bodies work. It's always the governor that will make uh, an appointment. And uh, that is something that we'll have to cross the bridge when we come to. I mean, in terms of their role, their role would be to be the voice of the consumer of home birth and in the functions of the regulatory body. Um, so whether it's talking about, um, you know, assessing a complaint against the midwife, you know, for whether it's a, a valid complaint, um, you know, whether it's about talking about a particular proposed uh, guideline and whether that's too restrictive from the consumer perspective and might decrease access to home birth or whether um, it, it's something that's appropriate. Um, that's it. I guess that's an example of the type of role of the consumer, but you know, the point is certainly to have the consumer voice represented. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. Cool. Okay, so the, um, the case you just mentioned, was that the tipping point, the catalyst for this bill to be written, or was there something else that caused this? I guess my question is like, why now? Why in 2018? So um, it, it's, so it's, it's interesting the way you raised the question. So that, that case, the Lee case, which took place in the 80s, was, was the catalyst for this bill. This bill has been around for like more than three decades, and it was introduced like right after that case. Um, <clears throat> so this 2018 version of the bill is, is one version in a long, you know, history <laughs> uh, of, of this of particular issue, licensing CPMs. So the bill was... Um, uh, the fact that it was introduced in the late 80s in response to that case we discussed goes to show that at the time, you know, practicing midwives in the state did not perceive that case as helpful. They perceived that as a concerning indication that they needed to get their own law on the books. Um, but to your point about, you know, why now? Why is there so much momentum now? Why is the 2018 version of the bill, like, you know, a good version, the version that should be passed? You know, uh, that's, that's that. I wanted to... Um, did, I wanted to put in a little bit of history that I understand around 2007 or so. I was not here. I was not involved in the bill at that time. It was quite a while ago that the bill was um, rewritten by State Representative Jeffrey Sanchez, who represents Jamaica Plain and some areas of Brookline. Uh, he's now the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, and I understand that back then he rewrote the bill um, to incorporate some changes that he thought would help it pass, including uh, making the bill a captive committee under the Board of Medicine rather than a freestanding independent midwifery board. Um, and the bill um, contained that provision for many years uh, and was uh, unsuccessful through several sessions um, through 2016. And then, uh, so here we are, we're in 2018. Uh, Massachusetts has still not passed CPM licensure despite, you know, some version or another of this bill being around um, since the 80s. Um, you know, and for obvious reasons, like we were 
discussing, it's not possible to have home birth midwives regulated under the Board of Medicine. Um, and even though the, the bill used to be um, set up that way, medical interests, you know, doctors, the Mass Medical Society, et cetera, were still working behind the scenes to prevent passage of CPM licensure like every session. Uh, so in 2015, um, a group of midwives, uh, consumers, of which I was really proud and grateful to be a part, um, sat down, we reviewed the bill really carefully, line by line, over a period of many months. Uh, we compared it to legislation that had passed in other states uh, that were carefully selected after um, being identified as, quote, good laws and not containing any of, you know, sort of the restrictions that people are fearful of when they talk about CPM licensure. Uh, and during that time, you know, we just extensively discussed sort of the pros and cons uh, of different aspects of the bill, whether certain things should be changed. You know, we had a lot of um, outreach to the local midwifery community about this, you know, taking feedback from the survey, uh, you know, from the, from the midwives, the local home birth midwives about things they did and didn't like about the old version of the bill and so forth. Um, and so the sort of outcome of that process, which was, you know, very um, in-depth and many months, months long um, was a few major changes. Uh, one, taking the regulatory body out from under the medical board and making it an independent board of midwifery under the Department of Health. Two, removing all references in the bill to normal or to low risk, um, which, you know, is an effort to make sure that we preserve the full CPM scope of practice uh, and to address concerns that licensure might result in uh, women having, uh, having their uh, full choice to deliver home taken away. Uh, and additionally, we updated the bill's educational requirements to be in line with the U.S. Mayor Agreement, uh, which uh, were promulgated by all the major CPM and CNM uh, organizations in 2015. Uh, to be in line with what's known as the International Confederation of Midwives standards. Uh, and those educational requirements, we'll talk about them in a bit, um, were endorsed uh, by ACOG in 2016. And so we had a long process, um, you know, discussing the pros and cons of this and um, ultimately putting uh, the language into the bill. Um, so as you may know about yes, now is the appropriate time to address it. Um, the language says that to obtain licensure, CPM certified after January 1, 2020, must hold a MEEK accredited education, which we talked about earlier, uh, and that CPMs who obtain their certification prior to 2020 will be grandmothered in to the law uh, if they go obtain the NARM Bridge Certificate, which is, uh, is, is essentially comprised of additional continuing education. Um, which is something that's already required by NARM for you to renew your CPM every year. You know, continuing education is mostly um, well known within the profession in general. Uh, and it's just uh, additional continuing ed hours uh, on specified topics that actually, if you plan well for it, can overlap um, with the existing continuing ed, ed requirements. They can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Um, so why 2018, you know, including the U.S. Mayor language has gained us the very active support of the Massachusetts affiliate of the American College of Nurse Midwives, uh, which has been really important. And uh, most importantly, the U.S. Mayor language has finally, after three decades, uh, secured the neutrality of the Mass Medical Society and the ACOG affiliate, meaning that for the first time, uh, the state medical organizations do not oppose this bill anymore, which is a huge uh, deal. You know, they've 
stood in the way for a long time. They're a very powerful lobby, and to have them agree to go neutral on CPM licensure uh, is really important uh, for access to home birth in the state. So the combination of uh, those two changes, um, you know, the, the U.S. narrow language, taking the regulatory body out from under the Board of Medicine and making it independent, um, as well as some other uh, cleanup language-related changes that we made, um, I think have made 2018 a tipping point. A lot of the substance of the bill is otherwise uh, the same. Um, we did retain uh, a lot, a lot of things from the old version, uh, as long as they were um, considered normal uh, or helpful. We did delete a lot of things that were considered kind of like uh, repetitive or or overly burdensome or confusing. But th those are the big. Um, big changes that we just discussed with Mira, changing the regulatory body and um, removing references to low risk. So we think that now the bill is much higher quality than in prior sessions. It reflects national trends. It has no more medical opposition. And um, also, I think as a result of a lot of these uh, good changes, uh, is supported by the majority of home birth midwives practicing in Massachusetts, as well as a really impressive coalition of organizations focused on uh, midwifery and women's uh, right specifically, like the ACLU, Amnesty International, Moms Rising, uh, Midwives Alliance in North America, and so forth. And so it's been um, really great. And finally, I think the last contributing thing is we're also really just finding that lawmakers are really tuned in to issues of maternal health, because 2018, I think, has seen this in the media a lot generally. You know, maternal mortality, severe racial disparities, postpartum depression, all these things are getting attention at the policy level and in the media uh, and the unique capability of midwives, especially home birth midwives, you know, to be a solution is finally resonating with the powers that be. And so we're just really excited about the timeliness of that. I love it. I agree that 2018 has been the year of the woman so far. So it's not new. Um, we're actually just now hearing of it. This has been around for for a bit now. And wow, what a journey. Um, wow, what a journey. So all of our listeners are, are, you know, well familiar with the idea that I have chosen not to be a certified doula or not to get certified um, because I just, I had my stance on that and I feel very strongly about it. And again, listeners, you can listen to previous episodes, but I also have to remind myself that I truly am not medical. I never crossed those boundaries, those gray lines that we were talking about that you either carry medicine or you don't, you're in medicine or you're not. I am not medicine. There is no other or, you know, there is no or you are, you might be, you could be, it is possible. I'm just not. So what do you say to the people out there who are thinking like, it's the client's rights, the patient's, the patient's rights to choose, and it's their responsibility to do their own due diligence when taking their care outside of the hospital setting, which I can also get behind. If you're going to do that, that's on you. I support you in that. I think you have the right to choose 100%, but you do have the due diligence to do research and make sure you know who's coming to your birth. What do you think about that? So to that, I say I completely agree. Due diligence and taking personal responsibility is a really important part of home birth, absolutely. Um, and I, I actually I don't think licensure changes that. I, I actually think that um, it supports both of those things that you said. Um, 
you know, this bill supports the patient's right to choose a home birth uh, by putting in place the infrastructure that will make the choice of a home birth both easier for women and more widely available. You know, easier because there's going to be more information about the providers available compared now, where there's no way to just, for example, to confirm that it's true if somebody tells you that they hold a CPM. You know, you don't know. You're just, there's no independent third party that's confirmed that. Uh, and NARM uh, does not serve consumers, so if you try to contact NARM to get them to uh, confirm for you, I, I don't think that they'll respond. Um, you know, uh, so there's also no centralized database of all the home birth midwives, since about half of the midwives in the state don't join the Midwives Alliance. You know, so it's just, uh, it's really, it's difficult out there to navigate if you're a consumer, and licensure um, sort of centralizes all the just really basic information that women need in order to start their search. Uh, for who's the right fit for them. And also, you know, we'll talk about it more, but ideally this bill is going to make home birth more widely available because insurance coverage and Medicaid coverage, which is how 99% of people pay for their delivery, you know, will not cover an unlicensed provider. Uh, and so licensure is really the only way to save a path to coverage. Um, and additionally, you know, you can probably appreciate that a lot of families who want a home birth face real um, psychological barriers to hiring someone who is not practicing fully above ground. And that's a legitimate uh, concern. You know, women should not uh, have to be willing to navigate a dark market in order to have home birth. You know, the system should support this option on equal footing with hospital birth so that women can more freely find the information they need and be assured of certain minimum safeguards, you know, in order to be able to more confidently and easily um, start interviewing people and make the choices that are best for them because right now, um, you know, that's not really the case. I would say that at best, we have kind of like an opaque market in Massachusetts, and I think some people would call it more of a, more of a dark market. Wow, that is scary. You know, it, it, it's just not healthy to be growing a baby in a body that is always subject to sneaking around in high adrenals and, and, you know, always feeling like you're in fight or flight. Listeners, you know, if this is you and you feel like you are having to sneak around for your care, I really challenge you to stop and think, um, I don't know, just think about it. So... Diana, do currently, um, do midwives and, and hospital health care physicians in Massachusetts currently, like, cooperatively support birth together? Can we make transfer seamless, or are they a sneaky thing? So, um, I think we should separate a little bit um, prenatal collaboration and transfers. Um, you know, so first I'll say, in general, um, you know, not really at the answer question. Um, there are certainly many hospitals in Massachusetts that I think do not mind receiving home birth transfers, and that's great. I mean, it could definitely be worse on that front. It's not like every hospital in Massachusetts is going to be like horribly hostile to a home birth transfer. That is not the case. There are a lot of, especially the big hospitals in the Boston metro area, that like, you know, that's not the worst thing they're saying all day. You know, somebody's coming in tired and needs like an epidural and some hydration or whatever, <laughs> you know, but like prenatally, if you want to get tandem care with an OB or a nurse midwife, you're taking a risk to disclose to them that you're planning a home birth on the side. You know, I know of only one hospital that won't drop you from care in that circumstance. And so a lot of times, you know, if women want that sort of, um, in case they do end up transferring, you know, they're either lying to their hospital provider or maybe their provider agrees to see them but, like, won't make any notes in their chart that the, plan, the client's planning home birth. You know, so that's, that's like, not ideal. I mean... Um, you know, ideally, if the client ends up transferring, it would be clear in their chart, you know, this person needs some prenatal care here, and this person is, you know, to be planning a home birth, just, you know, because 
any like confusion around that information can slow down transfers. And if it is really an emergent situation, you know, you don't want any delay in care due to confusion and that sort of thing. You know, as I mentioned in my little story about my own experience in Massachusetts, the hospital where I got some kind of uh, care prenatally when I was sending my home birth, they didn't care about sending home birth, but they would not speak to my midwife. They would not coordinate medication to her. It was very frustrating, and it created a lot of extra work for me to be the liaison, always having to provide, for example, my home birth midwife with the results of my blood work, et cetera, you know, rather than the hospital just coordinating with her like she was any other specialist. That would be what's ideal, you know. Our hope is certainly that with life insurance, Hospital providers will be more comfortable working with home birth midwives mainly because they're no longer dealing with somebody that they consider to be just a lay person. You know, they're dealing on equal footing with another licensed professional, and that opens up a lot of practical and psychological doors that can really benefit women and babies. Um, and, you know, of course, there are occasionally, um, you know, more hostile home birth transfers, or even if they're not outwardly hostile, you know, one of the issues that I've heard about a lot as an attorney is, you know, maybe they're not outwardly mean, but, um, like, let's say a transfer is um, for a hemorrhage, and the home birth midwife administered Pitocin at home, the Pitocin that we talked about, but a lot of them uh, have to get under the table. And uh, they come in, they tell the physician, you know, I administered Pitocin. And the physician to them, I'm aware this happened in Massachusetts a number of times, you know, where do you get that? What is your authority to administer that drug? Are you legally authorized to do that? You know, that's, that's a problem. That's a problem. So I wouldn't say that there's cooperation to support home births. No, I mean, I think that there's a tolerance. But, you know, I think as we also discussed earlier, tolerance can be gone on a dime, you know, in particular if uh, one day, you know, there's a really bad transfer and then suddenly you have, like, one or two angry doctors uh, who are making it their mission to shut home births down. You know, that's all it takes. So can you clarify for some of our listeners out there who are probably thinking, whoa, 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 if you have a midwife and you're planning a home birth, why would you also be seeing OB care? Yeah, sure. So um, some women who plan home births, in particular first-time moms, I did it. Uh, first-time moms, when you plan a home birth, your risk of transferring is uh, probably between 10 and 15%. Some people might say it's as high as 20%. Uh, usually, this is not emergent, it's just for uh, an epidural for like a prolonged, non-progressing labor, maybe some cesarean. Uh, a small percentage of women who choose home birth, of course, will end, uh, end up having a cesarean section, um, mostly not emergent, but rarely uh, emergencies can happen. And so, uh, you know, some women, uh, especially first-time moms, judge it wise that they have some tandem prenatal care at a hospital because if they're, you know, possibly going to end up in the hospital, it can really smooth things over if the hospital has a record on them. And when you walk in there, you know, you're not like the home birth transfer that they've never seen before and they're all confused, you are just another patient that they already know, they already have a record on, and it can really limit the potential for hostility um, and just generally make things go smoother. So that's what I'm referring to. Cool. So... Uh... How will this bill increase the access to maternity care to women in our state? You mentioned it before, but exactly how will, how will this work for the ladies in Massachusetts? Sure. So, look, certainly by making home birth more accessible than it already is. Um, currently, the choice of home birth in Massachusetts is limited only to those who can, uh, one, get comfortable with the lack of above-ground status, if they're, if they're even aware of it. A lot of women, I think, are not aware of that. Um, and two, who have the means to pay out of pocket. You know, it's, it's thousands of dollars to have a, a home birth in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, unless we're talking about, like, 
a really high deductible um, PPO type plan, uh, insurance coverage is basically unheard of for um, unlicensed providers. Uh, and so that's a really small population indeed, and the CDC data uh, available on home birth state by state confirms that Massachusetts is experiencing one of the lowest rates of home birth in the country compared to other states, you know, especially licensed states. Um, and I'm not just talking about numbers, right? We're a smaller state, so it wouldn't be fair to compare us to California in terms of numbers, but I'm talking about percentage of the population. Um, and licensure is the first step to Medicaid coverage, where uh, I think 45% of Massachusetts births are funded, and uh, thereafter, ideally, we hope that commercial insurance coverage will catch on since most families are covered by uh, like an employer-based uh, insurance. And um, you know, we know that in general, commercial insurance tends to kind of uh, benchmark to what, um, what uh, Medicaid and other public payers are doing. Uh, a recent survey conducted by NARM, which we talked about, uh, is North American Registry of Midwives, the credentialing body for CPMs, uh, showed that CPMs practicing in licensed states um, felt 63% of the time, 63% of responding midwives, and so I felt that licensure had increased the number of out-of-hospital births in their state. So we think there's a lot of potential um, there to increase the number of home births and increase access. We also think that licensure increases access by just increasing the number of practicing home birth midwives. You know, it's the build it and they will come principle, in other words. Uh, and referring back to that same NARM survey, it showed 64% uh, of CPMs practicing licensed states felt, licensed states felt that licensure had increased the number of practicing midwives, which is great. And, you know, we work with um, midwives and other consumers in New Hampshire, which had obtained licensure for CPMs, and we talk to them routinely, and they've, they've told us the same, that they feel it's increased the number of out-of-hospital births, the number of midwives in their state, and that's really, that's really great. And I think also, just anecdotally, you know, a lot of newer midwives and student midwives are hesitant to practice in a state where licensure is not available. You know, decades ago, being underground and not having a license, that was normal. Um, and so a lot of um, midwives of older generations are just not faced by that, but newer midwives are coming of age in a different time. You know, the large majority of other states now recognize CPMs legally, and therefore criminal prosecution is just not a risk. Um, and when that's your baseline for normal, you know, it's really hard to accept status quo in Massachusetts, which is that we're one of the last holdout states that doesn't have those protections. So last week on the show, we discussed the protection clause that has been proposed that says, with written documentation of consent, women should be granted the right to make their choice of having a home birth if they'd like. What's your stance on this clause and maybe your thoughts on why it hasn't been added yet? So HB 4655, um, I think we discussed a little bit earlier, contains no restrictions on CPM practice at all. No VBAC bans, no bans on breech babies, no bans on twins at home, no cutoffs for overdue moms, nothing. Like, we don't even have references to normal or low risk. We deleted all that. Um, and also, as we discussed, we made the Board of Midwifery stack with CPMs, five CPMs compared to one physician and one nurse midwife. So not only are there no restrictions in the law on who can deliver at home, a majority CPM board uh, cannot be overruled by medical interest in the process of establishing any practice guidelines. Uh, therefore, we the structure of the bill is set up to ensure preservation of the full scope of practice already. Um, and so we're really proud. We're really proud to say that there is not a need for this type of provision. You know, there's certainly some other states with licensure laws that really could have benefited from a loophole like this. You know, I think Maine comes immediately to mind. Um, but HB 4655 is really, it's just such a best case scenario for midwives and consumers that adding something like that would be superfluous. I think that to the extent there continues to be chatter about adding that type of provision, it stems from a lack of understanding about how uh, HB 4655 
compares to other licensure schemes around the country. It's really, um, I think, the best of the best. So for our listeners, the bill has been updated since last week's episode was recorded. So I'm also wondering, this bill is aimed to make home birth safer by making all training standard. What are the current stats for home birth? Things such as like transfers from home births, deaths, infants, infant death, and you know, like what does that look like when you look at the data through the lens of CPMs and direct entry midwives? So, you know, statistics on home birth are actually something that I think that we're really lacking, which is another thing that this bill is geared toward. You know, I assume that you're referring to stats related to Massachusetts home births, uh, and if so, the answer to your question is if there are no such stats. You know, home birth midwives are, you know, you know they're unlicensed here, and as a result, uh, there's not data collection going on from, like, Massachusetts Department of Public Health or anything, you know, on outcomes for home births, like transfers and neonatal deaths, you know, those types of things. Um, are discussed, if at all, behind closed doors among the midwives uh, here in Massachusetts, either informally or like in private peer reviews. So there's not really any way for consumers or lawmakers to know those things in terms of how the home birth industry in Massachusetts is really performing. You know, one day I think ideally the Department of Health would be collecting this information, but we need licensure first. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna do that otherwise. Um, you know, since CNM the 10 births in the hospitals. Uh, about 95% of the time. Um, to my knowledge, there's not a lot of data concerning outcomes for CNM attended home births, so those are CPMs. You know, you're probably aware that there's a lot of international studies on the state of home birth, which are really, they're great, um, but they come from nations that have a lot different healthcare systems than ours, and so the CNM, CPM issue uh, is not really accounted for in those studies. And, um, you know, much of the U.S.-specific literature on home birth is also deficient because a lot of those studies have been carried out by medical interests that um, are opposed to home births and that have failed to control in their studies for things like bias and uh, confounding factors, and as a result, the studies come out, you know, looking like home birth is, is more dangerous than it probably is. Um, you know, one thing that this bill would require, assuming the client consents, is that licensed midwives submit their practice staff to the national database on home birth outcomes, which is uh, the MANA staff. Uh, maintained by the Midwives Alliance uh, of North America, I think, Division of Research. Um, and the goal is, you know, to help develop that information, supporting, um, you know, the circumstances in which home birth is safest, where improvements needed, that kind of thing. You know, every few years, a new study comes out based on the MANIS gap. Most data on home birth safety in, uh, in the U.S. is collected at the national level from that MANIS gap database and um, is limited to um, PMs and the few CNMs who are um, who are attending home births, but that data also has its own limitations because submission to the MANA staff is voluntary. Uh, it takes time, it takes effort, and so um, you know some midwives don't do that, and so that data doesn't really reflect the full picture, either, which can kind of be better or worse, um, you know, than the MANA staff studies tend to show. You know, I think the best that I could offer to answer the original question uh, is that the 2014 MANA staff. Um, you know, the 2017 uh, study, I haven't been able to get a full copy of that yet, just like abstracts. But the 2014 MANA stats showed a transfer rate of 11%, a cesarean rate of 4%, and a death rate for the baby, which, you know, can be sort of broken down in different categories. There's intrapartum deaths, early neonatal, late neonatal. Uh, but in general, the uh, death rate for the baby in that particular um, MANA stats study was no greater than um, 1 in 1,000, which you know, I think it's, it's pretty good. Um, these statistics are not broken down between CNMs and CPMs, so 
difficult. Um, but there is a 2015 study, um, sort of getting closest to what you asked here, uh, published by Snowden at Al out of the Oregon Health and Science uh, Sciences University called Planned Out-of-Hospital Birth and Birth Outcomes. And in Oregon, CPMs have been licensed for some time, and they amended their laws so that birth certificates uh, can distinguish between planned place of birth, uh, and that was a factor that was poorly controlled for in a number of previous U.S. studies uh, about home birth that had been based on uh, birth certificates, uh, and uh, those studies suggested the death rate was high, but it was because at the time those birth certificates did not control for whether a home birth was like, for example, accidental um, or intended. Um, and so Oregon amended their laws to control for that on their birth certificates so that when they did studies on the outcomes of home birth, it could be um, higher quality. And that study suggested that the cesarean rate for home birth, um, again, Oregon data was about 5%, consistent with the manistats, but the transfer rate was about 16%, and that the uh, rate of infant death was um, uh, about 0.24%, which was slightly higher than hospital birth, uh, but still very small uh, in absolute terms. And that's consistent with what I think of as the sort of the generalized statistics associated with home birth, no matter how you slice it. Um, and like the others, this particular study in Oregon did not break down the difference in stats between CPMs, uh, CNMs, and other providers. It just kind of took them on the whole. Uh, but it did specifically note that outcomes are generally improved when midwives attending home births are integrated into the healthcare system, such as with licensure. So I hope that makes sense. Totally. That totally makes sense. So when, and we had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but insurance reimbursement or coverage and home birth, where do we stand on that issue? So the bill does not mandate insurance reimbursement for home birth. Um, and as we talked about earlier, because uh, home birth providers are currently unlicensed, uh, insurance coverage would be like you know, if it's happening, it's practically unheard of. Um, you know, so like I said, the bill doesn't mandate insurance reimbursement. That's not standard in licensing bills. Um, when we talk about, you know, national trends and what, what other states are doing in their licensure bills, and the reason is it attracts opposition from the insurance lobby, which is very powerful and could prevent passage if we try to put an insurance mandate in. So the way it works in general when you are pushing licensure laws like this is that licensure is the first step, and then thereafter, once it passes, you work with the state Medicaid agency, which here is uh, known as MassHealth, to make the case for public insurance coverage. Um, you know, and of course, with CPMs, the sort of cost-saving argument is just overwhelming, and the data coming out of other licensed states, in particular Washington, which has a really great licensure scheme. CPMs where Medicaid coverage exists, you know, they commissioned this really great private report showing that CPM care is not only really high quality, but just saves government payers and commercial insurance just a boatload of money. Um, so, you know, the plan would be to advocate to the state Medicaid agency for coverage, um, and that once Medicaid picks it up, thereafter to pressure private insurers to uh, start covering it as well. And um, in particular, there is a basis on which to do that because the Affordable Care Act uh, has something called the Hawken Amendment, which is also known as the Provider Non-Discrimination Clause, which says that insurance companies are basically required to cover the services of any licensed provider. So licensure is the groundwork. It's the first step. Um, and insurance coverage is the ultimate goal. Um, but, you know, like I said, the sort of pieces are there. Um, um, they have to fall into place after licensure, but for the reasons I described, we don't um, we don't mandate it uh, in the bill. 
Um, and even, you know, even for example, obtaining one day sort of half or partial reimbursement for uh, home birth costs would just be, even that would be a victory because, you know, compared to consumers paying, you know, five or, you know, four or five thousand dollars out of pocket, it would just um, make it a lot easier for people. Um, so we know it's possible. I'll just give this really great example I mentioned earlier. We work a lot <clears throat> with folks in New Hampshire who have had licensure for some time. Um, an example is the Birth Cottage, which is an independent run, uh, independent CPM run birth center uh, in New Hampshire where CPMs are licensed. I know that's something that we don't have here in Massachusetts. Um, they take 12 different insurances. They take Aetna, they take Cigna, they take the state Medicaid, they take Harvard Pilgrim, Blue Cross, Health Plan, and others. You know, and it's just really incredible to see the possibilities. And so that's what we're shooting for. Cool. That's amazing. The cottage. I don't know what you're talking about, but the name alone just makes me think of the farm down in Tennessee, which makes me feel all like, you know, warm and sunshiny. I love it. Cool. So how do people get involved? So if our listeners are out there and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I need to support this. I really want to stand up for this. I believe in this. How does someone, um, you know, get involved? Also, do you need to live in the state of Mass? Do you have to be a Mass resident? Yes, yeah, so you need to be a mass resident if you're going to contact lawmakers. You know, they um, they <laughs> uh, would probably yeah they don't they probably not have time for someone to contact them for another state. Um, but if somebody in another state wants to support our effort, I mean, the best way for them to do so is to get in touch with whoever they know in Massachusetts and have that person contact their representative in favor of the bill. Um, but you know, like I mentioned, we do collaborate with people in other states all the time. Um, you know, midwives in other states who are also working towards licensure, who are, uh, have already obtained licensure and want to give aid to uh, consumers and midwives in states like Mass where we still don't have a bill. Um, so you know, we do welcome working with, with people um, on sort of higher level advocacy or strategy stuff. Um, if they're not a Mass res resident, that's fine. Anybody can go to baystatebirth.org. Um, to find out more information, in particular, baystatebirth.org slash act uh, has instructions on contacting your lawmaker. Now, the end of the legislative session is coming up on January 31st, uh, and I understand that, you know, uh, the podcast will be aired before then, um, but uh, to the extent we're doing this again next year, we'll still be around. Cool. So you mentioned baystatebirth.org. Is there anywhere else that people can find information about this bill? You can always go right to the um, Mass Legislative website, um, www.malegislature.gov, and there's a search bar, and you can just type right in the search bar, it's right in the middle of the page, uh, HB4655, and you can pull up the text of it, and you can read it yourself, and I encourage people to, uh, to do that. Awesome. And Diana, where can people find you if they wanted to reach out to you personally? Um, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, any listeners can get put in touch with me through the Base Birth Coalition. They have a contact email uh, on their website in addition to a bunch of like information about the bill and testimony from supporters and stuff. Um, I think the contact is literally just contact basedatebirth.org, but it's, it's listed on the website. Amazing. Well, listeners, that's a wrap. There you have it. You have both sides of the story. I encourage you to look into this bill if you are in, um, if you're in our state and this matters to you or you know someone who is going to have a baby or has just had a baby or 
I don't know. I feel like this is just kind of applicable to everybody. So I feel like if you're in the state of Massachusetts, you should look into this for sure. That's my encouragement to you. Go forth and look into this bill. You have both sides of the story. You have all the resources in the show notes. Happy, happy Tuesday, you guys. I will see you on Friday. As always, villagers, find your tribe and love them hard. Did you know that you can join our online tribes? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching the Tranquility Tribe podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram tribe is Tranquility by Hehe. If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquilitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers.